Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lassley. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this whole conflict in Ukraine situation. You know, it's shown us a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. But one of the things that has come up a lot in these news stories is that you know, just having access to a technology doesn't mean nearly as much as how you decide to use that technology and incorporate it into the rest of the elements of an armed force. And, you know, that's something that's always been true of aircraft in particular, and it's something that the U.S. has continually dealt with since the earliest days of flight. So today we're going to revisit those early days for the U.S. and examine how the U.S. military services handled the invention of the airplane itself. And, you know, it's easy to think of these early planes as, you know, very crude wooden canvas contraptions. But at the time, they were cutting edge technology. Right. And so to make them effective in a military sense, you know, it's not always obvious as to how to do that. So to talk us through that story, we're joined today by Dr. Larry Burke, the aviation curator at the National Museum of the Marine Corps and author of At the Dawn of Air Power, the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps Approach to the Airplane, 1907 to 1917. Larry, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, let's go right into things here. So why decide to write a book on this topic? What got you into this project in the first place? So ironically, this is plan B, if you will. I had gone to a uh, Society for the History of Technology conference and was sitting in the special interest group for aviation history. And they asked us to go around and say what we were working on. And I stood up and introduced myself and said, I'm honestly here hoping to get a a good idea for my dissertation. Roger Launius was in the room and he said, hey, whoever it was was looking for a, a dissertation topic, come and see me. So I talked to him. He said one of the things that he hasn't seen is a really good multi-service history of the airplane. You know, so that got me thinking. I'm like, OK, it's it's a start. You know, I read historiographical articles talking about this idea of the ineffectiveness of air power in World War One, which is not terribly common, but it's an idea that some, maybe not even historians, journalists perhaps, seem to have gotten that this is idea that air power just was not significant in the First World War. And it was and it wasn't. But it got me thinking, okay, well, if if it was not important in the First World War, what was it before the First World War? How do you learn to use a new invention, especially when the inventor doesn't really have any idea themselves. You know, when you you look at the history of the Wright brothers, you know, they say, oh, we, you know, we went out uh, 1903, we, we successfully flew. They saw that as, okay, it's one more step in the experiment. It's not really a, a real airplane yet. So they go back to Ohio and they continue working. And, you know, at the end of 1905, they kind of have what they feel is a working, saleable airplane. But then they realize they have no idea why anyone would want to buy it. Like they were so focused on solving what to them was this very technical problem. And then once they were done, they were like, well, we could probably sell it, but we need to figure out how to sell it. Their mechanic says that they spent, I think it was 1906, not doing much flying and sitting around thinking about what to do with the airplane. And so, you know, they do come in with this sort of vague suggestion of, well, it it could be useful in reconnaissance. You know, when you you sit down to look at it, there is a huge gap between saying that and actually using it for reconnaissance. 
So that that was sort of the the genesis of this was, okay, so where do these ideas come from? Larry, I want to go back to something you said earlier about uh, the Wright brothers and, and selling the first airplane. And this is my uh, contractual obligation to, to mention Disney in every podcast. And I'd, <laughs> I'd recommend all of our listeners go out and watch uh, Walt Disney's History of Flight uh, that talks about the Wright brothers and selling the aircraft to the United States military. And so let's talk about airplanes in 1907. What was state of the art at that time? And this is just a few years after the Wright brothers' first flight. So the Wright brothers do approach the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Army is a little bit plain shy, if you will, the Army organization, the Board of Ordnance and Fortification, which by 1900 had morphed into sort of the Army's clearinghouse for new technological ideas. Samuel Langley, who had in fact succeeded in uncrewed aircraft, steam-powered oddly enough, he had tested these, we call them models, but they were like 13, 14-foot wingspans. And he felt he was so close, he just needed a little bit more extra. And he ends up getting that from the Board of Ordnance and Fortification. He had spent all of his money and didn't quite have what he wanted, but he figured, well, look, if I can demonstrate that this thing will, will take off and fly in a straight line, that should be enough to get me a little bit more funding. And, and un unfortunately, the two times he attempted to demonstrate this, it just flopped straight off the end of the houseboat. He, he was launching it out <laughs> over the water. One of my favorite aviation pictures of all time, by the way. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the second one was, was very dramatic because the wings just fold up. It really does look like a wounded duck. He was basically forced to do it off the end of Fort McNair in D.C. It's walking distance from the Capitol building. So the public came down, Congress came down, and they saw this second abject failure. The board was absolutely excoriated in Congress. And so, you know, oh, their army is wasting money on pipe dreams. Uh, you know, what next? Building a house starting with the roof line. So when the Wrights send them this letter, the BOF was very nervous about engaging with them. And they sent back basically a canned response of, we need proof that you've actually done this before. You know, we're not willing to give money anymore for experimentation. We're only willing to give money if you can prove that you've done this. And the, the Wrights had their own concerns about they didn't have a patent yet. And they were concerned that if they gave away too much before they got the patent, they wouldn't get the patent. So board wants more information. They don't really want to give away too much information. And they both kind of go their own separate way thinking, oh, you know, the other party isn't really interested. They do eventually get back together in 1907. By that time, to get back to your question, Brian, about state of the art, there are others who have independently created aircraft. There, there are other people that have come up with designs, but all of them were, were fairly similar. You're talking about a, a biplane design, open fuselage, empennage in the back. 1907, most of them have uh, canard elevators up front. And the aviator is basically sitting on the front of the wing. The one thing that the, the Wright brothers had done uh, between their 1903 airplane and the time they get around to demonstrating for the Army in 1908 was, whereas the 1903 airplane, you had a single pilot lying prone. In 1905, they developed something with a little bit more power, a little bit more lift, can carry two people aloft sitting upright. That kind of is the, the standard in, say, 1908 of the people that have succeeded. 
Well, as this technology goes forward, you know, one of the things I really like about your book is you explain the changes that happen in large part due to just the structure of these organizations. Look at how the army is set up. Look at how the Navy is set up in terms of the how the different departments work and who's going to be in charge of the airplane. The way the bureaucracy in these organizations works has a big impact on how that technology is used. So can you walk us through some of that and especially comparing the Army to the Navy and then also with the Marines having its kind of unique situation? Yeah. So the the Army, you know, again, I was thinking, oh, how do you develop a use for a technology when you don't when you know this is this is not building off of anything else? And actually, when I started reading the Army history, I realized eh, it kind of does build because going back to the Civil War, the Army is operating balloons, tethered balloons, but they're doing this for reconnaissance. The Europeans are kind of taken with this idea of military ballooning. And by the time you get to the 1880s, there's there's a resurgence in military ballooning. The U.S. Army Signal Corps, which gets created during the Civil War towards the end of it and ends up being in charge of balloons just about the time they stop using balloons, has sort of outgrown its boundaries in the 1880s. And Congress passes some, some new laws that sort of tear off what becomes uh, the National Weather Service and sort of refocus the Army Signal Corps back on collecting information, sending messages. As I said, in the 1880s, the chief of the Signal Corps at the time is very interested in uh, the military ballooning, and he tries to get the Signal Corps back into it. His successor is also very interested. And in fact, there there is one balloon by the time of the Spanish-American War, 1898, there's one balloon gets sent down to Cuba. It's actually at the Battle of San Juan Hill. Do we need to revise our vision of Teddy Roosevelt then to incorporate air power? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Which is interesting because he does have a role to play in getting the Board of Ordnance, Ordnance and Fortification interested in uh, Langley's aeronautical experiments, too. So, yeah, the Army has this aeronautical organization. So when the airplane comes along, the Signal Corps says, hey, it, it's aviation, it's us. And there's really nobody else in the Army that's interested enough to fight them for it. I'm not sure anyone else even even would have if there hadn't been a, a clear winner already. So you get this built-in support system of an, you, you have an established organization. It's not just been created for the airplane. It's there. It's led by a flag officer who is interested in seeing it succeed. This does arguably cause problems later on when some people are thinking that the, the Signal Corps is actually holding aviation back, that you know the Signal Corps isn't interested in developing offensive uses of the airplane because the Signal Corps doesn't do offense. It does reconnaissance, map making, information passing. So there are people who think that the chiefs of the Signal Corps are intentionally holding back aeronautical development so that they don't lose control of, of the airplane and the money that it brings in. And, and the other thing I have to say about the Army is that the airplane is arguably the first mechanized unit in the Army. Even vehicles, internal combustion vehicles are not common. When the Army does go down into uh, Mexico on the punitive expedition in 1916, it's the mechanics from the air squadron that are putting together the trucks that the army is going to use for you know logistics in Mexico. So you also have this this very different relationship to technology. You look then at the navy, you know the the army has these sort of functional divisions. So you got you've got the signal corps, you've got infantry, you've got cavalry, you've got artillery, those are sort of the big ones. You know, you've got a quartermaster corps, you've got some other other support corps. The navy obviously uh 
you know, has this long history until you get the 1880s and they start moving towards, you know, steam and rifled guns. But even then, you, you, it's, it's basically the Navy has one arm. It's ships. And so their organization is set up around handling different responsibilities for the ship. So you've got the, the Bureau of Construction and Repair responsible for, for building and main, you know, repairing these things. You have what is the Bureau of Steam Engineering, uh, you know, that gets created in the 1880s when steam engines come in. Um, these are the people initially responsible for the engines, but then for all of the sort of ancillary things that come with that, which means electricity as well. Um, and then, you know, hydraulics and things like that. You've got the Bureau of Navigation, which is responsible for, you know, keeping the, the charts and the, the star charts and uh, navigational equipment. And then for some odd reason, personnel. But you've got the system where everyone is theoretically coming together to build one thing, a working ship, and put people on it and make sure that it's got everything it needs to go into battle. And so when the airplane comes along, there is not history of ballooning in the Navy. And it's also not obvious where it should go. Should it be treated like ships, boats, and captain's gigs, which come out of the Bureau of Equipment? Or should they be treated like ships, where steam engineering is going to purchase the engines, construction and repair will build the framework, you know, obviously navigation will put in whatever instruments are needed. So it's not clear where it should go. And once the Wright brothers do successfully demonstrate their airplane, there are official and unofficial naval observers at those tests. And the official one comes back and says, hey, now that this has been proven, I can see ways the Navy can use these. That initially sort of goes up the chain of command and just kind of gets sat on. But then a year later, you've got that bureau and another bureau both requesting uh, authorization to purchase an airplane for this new construction cruiser that's coming out. Arguably, unfortunately for the Navy, the Secretary of the Navy kind of punts and says, well, I'm not willing to do this yet, but why don't both of you assign one officer to work with this guy that I've got handling all of this aviation correspondence that I'm getting these days? The Aero Club of America was being very active about trying to promote aviation and were right kept writing the secretary of the navy saying hey we think you should buy an airplane and he finally said to his staff look can i can i get somebody that knows something about airplanes that can write back to these people and they they end up picking uh, a captain washington irving chambers who was just kind of given this informal role of responding to aviation and he does kind of take that as i haven't actually been given a lot of responsibility but i'm going to kind of leverage that to try to promote this idea of aviation he doesn't come in knowing anything about it, but once he begins reading about it, he becomes an enthusiast and agrees that, yes, the Navy could use these things. And so, you know, as that develops forward, then you, you continue to have this problem of where should aviation be? And initially, you know, even though Chambers doesn't really have authority, he is the person to, to talk to. And he's just kind of in the CNO's office. He doesn't really have a permanent position. Oddly, it turns out that Admiral Dewey, who is head of an advisory committee for the Navy, happens to also be an aviation promoter. And he says, no, I, you know, Chambers needs support. Let's bring him into this advisory organization. He does that. And then a couple months later, Congress says, yes, OK, we'll give the Navy money to buy an airplane and we're going to put the money in the budget of the Bureau of Navigation, which is not one of the two or three bureaus that had been asking for control of the airplane. And I still haven't figured out why they put it in the Bureau of Navigation. But Chambers now has to move again and get a transfer into the Bureau of Navigation. 
so that he can spend that money. That really does continue, you know, going forward that you, you have this push and pull of the admiral in charge of the Bureau of Navigation doesn't want airplanes. In fact, he, he recommends to Chambers, he says, there's, there's, we don't have any office room. You may as well work from home. At the time, he knew that if he's working from home, this thing isn't going to go anywhere because no one's ever going to see him. He's not going to talk to anyone. So you, you do have that going back and forth. Oddly enough, though, I, I think it does pay off when the U.S. does get into the First World War and suddenly has to produce all of these airplanes that that's kind of what the Navy is set up to do, to produce lots of big, expensive things and get them out the door. And then again, the Army is sort of shuffling. They do have an engineering organization of sorts, but it's kind of split between the Signal Corps and the Bureau of Ordnance. The Navy has a history of, of Navy yards where they build their own ships to check the cost against that of, of building in, in private shipyards. Army doesn't have anything like that. Army doesn't really have, other than its weapons, doesn't really have a history of producing its own stuff at an industrial scale. And so I, I think these things play into how aviation develops in the services as well. And then the, uh, the Marines, the book covers the pre-war period, but the Marines pre-World War I are a very, very small organization. The entire officer corps is something like 350 to 500 people. You know, the enlisted corps is not very large either. And the thing of it is, is that in 1911, 19, actually 1912, which is when um, uh, Alfred Cunningham puts forth this idea that the Marines should get airplanes, Marines are coming off of a sort of existential crisis in uh, 1909-1910, where at that point they had been ship's guards and basically Navy Yard security. The president is looking at this and saying, why, why do we still need a Marine Corps? Why do we have Marines on ships? We, we don't really have the issue of mutiny that was the, you know, going back in history was the reason for having Marine guards. Let's get rid of them and shuffle any important duties into the Army. So, you know, the Marine Corps is really kind of having to, to fight for its existence. And they get thrown this lifeline of the advanced base force, which again goes back to changing technology and the fact that the Navy is now relying on steam, that it needs fuel, unlike in the days of sail, they could just keep sailing. So the, the Navy recognizes that in any future conflict, like the Spanish-American War, where they had to fight in the Philippines, they're going to want some place to sail to, refuel and then go into battle. So they come up with the idea of the, the advanced base, which is a, a quiet anchorage somewhere not occupied that they don't have to fight to occupy. You know, they can move in, they can, they can refuel, they can go into battle. After battle, they can come back, refuel, rearm, repair, and go back into battle again if they need to. The Army and Marines are kind of, when this idea comes up, they're kind of given shared responsibility for landward defenses of such a base, saying, no, we're not going to assault to get where we want to go. But once we get there, we don't want the enemy assaulting us from the landward side. And the Army never really does much about it. So, you know, coming out of this existential crisis, the Marines get thrown this lifeline of, okay, you're now in charge of landward defenses. And they quickly create this advanced base force school in Philadelphia to start to explore, okay, what kind of force do we need? You know, how big does it need to be? What kind of weapons do we need? What kind of specialists do we need? This is where Alfred Cunningham is, and this is where he comes back and, and writes his letter that goes up the chain of command saying, hey, you know, Marine Corps does not have cavalry. We can use airplanes the way the Army uses cavalry. And to use a, a very modern term, 
airplanes then as a, as a force multiplier, that they can make that small force more effective because the airplanes will be able to see the enemy coming at them. You know, the fact that the you know, Marine Corps is so small, it is going through this sort of period of, of changing its core basis for being. It just sort of reinforces what I think of a, a basic Marine mentality of doing what you can with what you've got. Certainly comes forward into the you know, later history of the Marines. Larry, as interesting as it is and as important as it is, you know, we, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about historical theory on the show. Your approach is actually really interesting, and you use what's called the actor network theory. Without getting into the weeds, can, can you describe some of the major actors in this story, uh, how they built networks for the cause of military aviation? And I will add in there that I, I think one of the most enjoyable aspects of this book from an air power perspective was getting to read about some of these, you know, I will almost call them lesser known characters who were really important in the development of military aviation. Uh, yeah, and from the, the point of view of lesser known characters, it was something that I noticed writing this, that aviation is so small in the pre-World War I period that I really could and almost did follow everyone that was involved in it. Of course, once I once I hit uh, you know the U.S. involvement in the First World War, it just exploded, and it does become more of a looking at the the big you know the leaders uh, with the the people in the field when I could find them. So yeah, the uh, actor network theory is something that that I I think in a lot of ways is still kind of being developed as I was doing the sort of historiography and the development of it for the dissertation, and then that developed into. Um, uh, another article in the International Journal of Military History, where I explored it a little bit more in comparison with other theories of military innovation. That uh, you know, the the idea was put out there, and then like three or four different people in the history of technology took it all in slightly different directions. The one whose interpretation I like best is uh, Bruno Latour. He had his own complicated relationship with it where he was one of the founders and then he decided he hated it and then he came back around to it again. Short version as he developed it is basically that things change because of, of um, networks that develop. The approach is to, to go in with an open mind, and one of his earlier books on this is a, a subtitled uh, uh, How to Follow Scientists Through Society. And he says that that's what you're doing. You're following these people. Who are they talking to? What are they talking to them about? And one of the controversial things that comes out of this is that as, as historians, we're used to talking about historical actors. And historians of technology have really fought against the idea that technology is an actor, because in the sense that most historians use the word, you know, technology is not self-aware. You know, it, it's not what does what does the technology want? It's what do the you know, it's really what do the people want to do with technology? So to come back and say that these networks, which are made up of actors, uh, can include non-human actors. You know, the, the historians of technology going, no, this, this is exactly what we're, we're saying isn't the case. The difficulty is that they're, they're not using the word actor in the same way. You know, I've, I've seen one explanation that said it's really more talk, like talking about a um, chemical reaction where you have an actant that interacts with another actant to produce a reactant. And that that's the sense of, of actor that's really meant in this case. So what he's saying is you, you have to follow these networks as they develop. And you can't go in 
you shouldn't go in with thinking, okay, I'm going to look for this kind of pattern. You should just let it develop and see what kind of pattern develops. It's like watching, uh, you know, like, like flight aware or something like that. If you're following multiple airplanes at the same time, if you watch airplanes over the course of the day, you'll see certain routes that all the airplanes are taking that aren't there. If you look at the map, unless of course, you know, about, you know, VOR beacons and things like that, know that they're, you know, flying in designated zones. You know, this is basically doing the same thing, is, is look at what networks develop. For the, the non-human actors, I will go back to Samuel Langley and his non-human actor. One of, the, one of the important points of getting the network together where he finally gets the Bureau of Ordnance and Fortification to give him money is that he, he is recognized as a, a well-known scientist. Of course, by the time he approaches them, he's the secretary of the Smithsonian. So they know he's not a crackpot. And he has also demonstrated some success already. Those two models that he has flown a total of three times you know, between the two models, that is demonstration that he's on the right track. And so it's, it's that that gives the board the confidence of, well, we think he can do it. So let's give him the money. And then, of course, that non-human actor fails when his man-carrying version just collapses into the Potomac and the network falls apart. So it was going through and, and looking at what networks develop. And the interesting thing when I was breaking out this pre-war part from the dissertation, as I said, the dissertation goes into through the end of the First World War, and I did include a, a little sort of postscript of some of the stuff I was working on after the war. You know, when I did that, I said, aha, okay, it really needs this connection where you've got one or more people at the, at the bottom end of this, the people actually using the technology on a day-to-day -day basis who know what it can or can't do very intimately, have grease up to their elbows, if not higher. You know, these are the guys who know what the current state of the art can do, what it can't do, have a sense of, hey, this is small change here and we can do this other new thing with the very senior guys, like in the army, the, the uh, chief of the signal corps, who have the rank and who have the control over military budgets to give these guys at the bottom of the, the hierarchy the space and the time and the money to develop these ideas. When I cut this down for the book to just talk about the, the pre-war period, I realized, oh, something doesn't happen because there's really, you know, there, there is development here. But if you read in the book, you can see that there's experimenting, but the experimenting really doesn't go very far. And it's really only in the last minute, if you will, before the, the U.S. gets into the war, that development seems to start moving again. It's, it's in all the services, it's just kind of stagnated. And I, I realized in going back and looking at it again, I'm like, okay, well, let me go back. What are the, the networks that develop? And I realized the problem is they, they don't really develop. You know, yes, somewhat in the Army, again, just because there's that stability of it's been assigned to the Signal Corps and for anything to change, it really has to be ripped away. And there are efforts to do that prior to 1917. But there is a certain stability there. In the Navy, there's less so. There's no longer really one person by the time we get to, to 1916, 1917, just because of the way things have developed. There's no longer really one person with the seniority or even the ear of senior people that can really push aviation in the Navy. And so I realize that what, what happens is that the networks never really coalesce prior to the First World War. It's starting to happen 
And it's, you know, it's one of those interesting, you know, what if, what if there is no first world war? How does aviation develop in the services at that point? And would they eventually catch up to where Europe was at this point following, you know, a couple of years of basically, uh, you know, forced development in wartime of this still very, very embryonic technology? Well, someone once told me, and I forget now who it was, but they, they, and it's always stuck with me that most of us air power historians, we wear our theory like underwear, like it's underneath what we write, but it doesn't always come to the surface. And what I like about your book is you have this strong theoretical underpinning that you've just described, but it's still a very readable book. It's very easy for, I think, any audience uh, to dive in and really get into this story. Um, so for those who want to do that, again, it's At the Dawn of Air Power, the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps' Approach to the Airplane, 1907 and 1917, by Larry Burke, and that's from Naval Institute Press. Larry, thanks again for being on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, Brian, where are you online these days? Uh, currently, at least this month, I am still on Twitter. Uh, but most notably, I have my own website, which is www.brianlastly.com. Uh, and there is a link to get in touch with me there. Mike, how about yourself? Well, I'm at mwhankins.com. And all of us, of course, are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonsadrones.com slash contact. We're also accepting article submissions for publication, so feel free to drop us one of those. Thank you all, and we will see you next time.